once you've liberated yourself from your ego, that's what ultimate freedom is because it doesn't matter what you can experience in your life. It won't imprison you. Well, hello, freedom lovers. Welcome to another episode of the Freedom Media Network. I'm your host, Kurt Mercadante, and today's guest is no stranger to the Freedom Media Network. I think this will be his third time, and I hope to have him back many, many times because every time I read one of his books, I'm like, oh, this is my favorite book. And then I go back and read one of his older books. I'm like, no, no, this is my favorite book. Today, we're going to discuss one of my favorite books, <laughs> which is Fasting the Mind. Our guest, of course, is best-selling author, philosopher, documentarian, Eastern philosopher, Jason Gregory. Uh, and he joins us today to discuss the book, Fasting the Mind. And in the book, he writes, it, it was Spiritual Exercises for Psychic Detox. It combines cognitive psychology with Zen, Taoist, and Vedic practices to empty the mind. Jason, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me back on, Kurt. I always enjoy our conversations. Yeah, yeah, and you and you're joining us from Brisbane, Australia, but at the time next next year at this time you might be in India or Thailand, right? Yeah, I think the next time we speak I'll be definitely overseas, so this is the last time in Australia for sure. Excellent. And it's been it's been a long time coming actually, so. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people are 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 waiting to get out and spread their wings out of their cages <laughs> that they've been in for a couple of years. <laughs> exactly. Um you know, and speaking of, of the last few years, and 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 you know, maybe we're going into some, a, another bit of craziness. Mm. You know, you see the hysteria, and you see the fear porn, and the panic, and the anxiety, and it's like this is the worst of times ever. But when you go back to some of the times that you write about, the Warring States period in China, the Taoist Lao Tzu, Changsa, yeah. times were pretty bad there, right? I mean, it was like 400 years of nonstop wars and fighting, and yet they found a way to have peace and calm in their lives, right? That's true. That's true. And even if we just go back, if we, even if we look back just 80 years with the Second World War, you know, if we, if we go back to the First World War, like there were times that were a lot tougher than the times that we live in now, but we have a lot of recency bias, you know, so we get caught in the dramas of the times and we think that this is this is the end game or this is what's you know going to finish the human race off and then invariably humans adapt and we move on you know it's it's part of our strength to adapt and move on and as you said with the warring states period of china one of you know the most interesting times i believe in human history where you had a lot of great philosophies arise and a lot of people jostling to you know be the king or the greatest philosopher of that time which ended up being confucius in during that period of time but you know it wasn't always it wasn't a, a stereotypical time of world peace at that time it was more of it, you know it, it was called warring states period for that for that fact you know that there, it was a troubling time and sometimes when there's a lot of troubling times it's like a, a lotus flower grows out of the mud to use that sort of metaphor where out of that came Taoist philosophy, for example. Now, obviously, Taoism had been known possibly before Lao Tzu, but it definitely arose with, I mean, it was solidified and, and formulated through through the Tao Te Ching, you could say, at that time. So, And you could, you could, you could argue, also argue that Confucian philosophy as well, right, with the Analects. I mean, it's not that it's a bad philosophy, just when you measure it up against Taoism, it's, it's a little inept. And he basically took Taoism and made it into a, a rules and regulation religion, right? <laughs> For exactly. lack of a better term. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Instead of, a nat instead of a natural methodology, he made it a way of uh, inducing the Tao into our social life. Hmm. So, I mean, you could, you could see his argument there, but it, it kind of defeats the purpose of what, actually what Lao Tzu is trying to get at, is to stick to our nature as opposed to change our nature according to some sort of socio- economic, political, religious philosophy. Can you tell us the story, you know, where, and, and it's not Lao Tzu who writes about fasting the mind. Uh, no. And I've seen, I've seen other uh, um, variations or translations. It's always interesting to read just different translations. You know, Thomas Merton, his translation of Chang's is very different than, um, oh, I can't remember her name. She's but, got one that I read back and forth. Yeah. Um, uh, and, but, uh, and he got, I think, someone calls it fasting the heart instead of fasting the mind. But can, can you explain that and share that story with us that Changsa writes about? 
Yeah, Drungs writes about it's the the translation that I would recommend is probably Burton Watson's translation because he's <clears throat> he well he's passed away now, but he he's probably one of the foremost sinologists, you should say. Uh, I would say, and um, in the story, uh, Confucius kind of plays the the sage figure in in this in this story. Like in the Drungs, it's really interesting because Drungs has got a really good sense of humor. Where one minute Confucius is this you know, an idiot that doesn't know, understand the Tao. And then the next minute he's a sagely figure who <laughs> understands the Tao, you know, so, and this is where a lot of people think that the drums, was actually written by a few different people, you know, mm. um, but that's another story. But so in the story, uh, Confucius's disciple, Yunwei, Yunwei, there's, there's a, there's a ruler in, in one of the Western states called Wei. And so Yunwei is under the impression that, you know, this guy's, you know, he's, he's killing and torturing people. You know, people don't have money and this and that. And so he he says to Confucius, you know, I'm going to go and reform him. I'm going to go and teach him the Taoist principles or the, in, in this sense, the Confucian principles, you know, piety, you know, humility, everything, all of these virtues that we would say are, that we can cultivate as opposed to a Taoism who say that it's like they're actually inherent qualities. But, and so he's, he says to Confucius, I'm going to go and do this and that. And then Confucius just sh- shuts him down and says, he continually shuts him down. It's kind of, it's a real funny story because everything that he throws at him, Confucius continually shuts down. And the last one he throws at him, he says, I'm going to go and do this and that. And he says, You'll, you won't succeed because you haven't fasted. And Yanwei says, what do you mean? I fast all the time. Like I don't drink wine on this particular day. I don't eat any grains on this particular day. Uh, and I celebrate every, you know, whatever the astrological days are according to that time, that that part of time in China. And he said, no, no, that's the fasting of the body. I'm talking about the fasting of the mind or the fasting of the heart, as you said. And he said, what is the fasting of the mind? And it's basically this lifestyle you could say that you live or a mentality that you have where you don't have a perspective of this and that like you don't have a personal agenda and so uh confucius's point in this story confucius being the mouth point mouthpiece of Zhuangzi, is that when we have too many preconceived ideas or when we have too much information in our head that often stimulates our mind we can't see reality as it truly is and so you are going to be of no service to that ruler if you have an agenda, if you have a personal opinion of what he should do because you yourself haven't, haven't resolved all of these things within yourself and you, are, you haven't fasted your mind. So you, you can't do anything about it. And then basically at the end of the story, Zhuangzi being, uh, Confucius being the mouthpiece of Zhuangzi here, says, you know, once you can fast the mind, then you'll understand what oneness is. And then you can go and play in his birdcage or be near him and just your mere presence may may be enough to change the ruler's way. And so, you know, particularly in the West, when we hear this sort of story, we go, how is that even possible? Right. You know, but this is, but this is a big thing in the in the East where it's, a focus on ourselves to change. Well, we change in changing ourselves. We actually inadvertently change other people. And in the West, that's really not how we think because we think that, well, maybe we need to go out and change the political stratosphere or we need to get rid of a certain president to fix the ills of the society. And then we often, when we change presidents or we do this and that, we often see that it often is worse or, it doesn't change at all. So, right. and it happens all throughout history, not just in places like America. If you go to any other country, it's always the same. And this is what Lao Tzu's point, or Zhuangzi's point is in the story, is that when we're coming from that place of having too many agendas and too many opinions, nothing usually changes at all because we haven't changed ourselves ultimately. So, Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, we've we've had a number of, tragedies here in the u.s but there's a tragedy somewhere in the world every minute of the day right and it's it's just a matter of what the people in the news want us to see but in every single of these tragedies that have happened here and i won't even say what they are you know 
I bordering on a hundred percent goes back to something that occurred in their family life. They were ignored. People knew about things that were going to happen. I'm talking about people doing things at schools and things. And it's interesting that everyone, you mentioned changing ourselves to change other people. Everyone here, whenever there's a tragedy or something in politics or whatever, wants to say someone should do something. Someone else should do something. The politicians, they ought to pass a law and they ought to do this, this. And kids today, and many of those same people go home and ignore their kids. They're angry with their kids. They, they build a life of anger, which is violence. Mm. And then they wonder why the world isn't changing when all they do is say, you should change, you should change, you should change. And, and you know, I, I'm perfect. I'm perfect. I don't need to change at all. And when everyone says that, it's like the old tragedy, the commons, you know, experiment where they, uh, they, no one actually cleans up the park because it's no one's responsibility. And they say, well, the government will do it. So the park gets crappy and the government, you know what I mean? No one takes, and when you take a hundred percent responsibility, then it's, I just, I feel like people, and I used to work, I worked in politics for decades. It's allowing, you allow, not you, but people allow presidents, politicians, whatever, to live rent-free in their head mm. and affect them, whether it's Trump derangement, Biden derangement, Bush derangement, and you almost become a prisoner of that person, even though, because not even though, because you hate them so much, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And I've, interestingly enough, I... Uh, a professor actually in Arizona contacted me a year ago about fasting the mind was saying to me, if only we had this in schools in the US. Wow. And I've, I've had a few in places like India and China, for example, saying, which is, you know, no surprise, but saying that we have your book at our school, at our university, and a lot of students resonate with it. And we can't obviously put it into curriculum, but that the idea of fasting the mind would solve a lot of problems in the world. As you said, if we were taking care of our own business, taking care of our, having responsibility for our own mind, then a lot of things would change. And that's a lot of that's a lot of problems in the world because people will take a lot of responsibility for their for their health, say, their physical health, but they don't do anything about their psychological health. Mm. And so as you said, they allow the narrative to run rent-free in their mind, and it's the narrative itself that's the problem. It's, you know, and I would, I would argue that fasting the mind is more important than fasting the body because once you have fasted the mind, then you wouldn't probably delve into bad health and, mm -hmm. and whatever the society is kind of gearing you towards, you know, junk food and, and so forth and so on. So if we took care of our own backyard, you know, to use the old, our old grandma ter terminology, then everything else sorts itself out. But as you said, we're coming from this place that we are already right. And so once we think we're already right, our subjective view is what is right and everyone else's subjective view is just nonsense, then that's where the problems begin. And in, yeah. in Vedanta, they have a funny way of explaining that because they say when you look at our own subjectivity and we think that our own subjectivity is the be-all and end-all and everything else is an object, but then when we flip it, that person looks at you as an object and say, but the ultimate subject is Brahman, is the Tao. And you are only an object in, in regards to that. But you think you're the be-all and end-all, or you think your worldview is the be-all and end-all. And so Zhuangzi's point in, in the Fasting Mind passage was that it's the subjective viewpoint that's inherently wrong. Because first of all, the subjective viewpoint changes as we get older. It, you know, it does, right? Like I've seen people, for example, who have been uh, politically right, who have turned left or left, who have turned right, and it's happened slowly over time. And that's just an example. But And I've seen Christians become Muslims and, you know, it's like, and so from this sort of greater perspective, what you think today may not be true tomorrow. And so when you keep that sort of distance from this sort of activity in your mind, then you then you allow life to be as it will and and sort of not fuel those those thoughts that are trying to stimulate your mind. And most of the time, a lot of people don't think about this. It's something like 90% of thoughts that we have are, are completely unnecessary. 
Like they they offer us yeah. no utility. They offer us they they they're basically meaningless. And we understand this through daydreaming, through through fantasizing, and just through overthinking situations. Like for example, if you think you offended someone, sometimes we we ruminate on that for twenty four hours. Then we see that same person again, but they're okay. And you so all of that twenty four hours you were <laughs> concerned about their feelings, you didn't have to be. And so you basically wasted a whole day because your mind is full. Hmm. And so in Taoism, they use this kind of mind cup analogy where, you know, is your cup empty or full? Or, or as Lao Tzu says, what do you value? The cup or the space within the cup? Hmm. And, and so if without the space, we can't taste it, a, a lovely beverage, right? And so our mind inherently... And this is a, a little bit of Zen Buddhism is empty, spontaneous, and free. It's inherently empty, spontaneous, and free. But when we fill things up in it, our mind, its habit is to cling and to attach to things. And so then Jason becomes Australian. He becomes Buddhist, maybe. He becomes this and that, which is in opposition, or he thinks he's in opposition to Kurt, who may be Hindu who is American. And right. so we, we create these artificial boundaries in our mind because our mind is not allowed to be as it truly is, which is empty, spontaneous, and free. Yeah, and in our society, it's exacerbated by the culture which wants your cup to overflow. My cup overfloweth. People will post it, uh, and I'm so happy. And then, you know, they've, they've swung the pendulum so far this way, and then the next day, they're yeah. depressed. Yeah. And... um you mentioned the word free and, and free. I meant to ask you this last time. I totally forgot. I don't know why, but you brought, you brought up the word free and, and Changsi uses the word, well, in some translations, freedom. You talk about freedom in this book, but also in uh, the science of practice, humility, you talk about freedom and, and the way you talk about freedom is different than a lot of people. You know, freedom, like many words has been charged with energy that may or may not mean certain things, right? Some people here now hate the word freedom because other people use it in a political context and it's something you go get. Mm. How do you define freedom? Well, there are different layers of freedom, as you said, but the, the Eastern interpretation of freedom is to be free from yourself, to be free from the conditioning that you've that has been impressed on you. So the socialization process that you've gone through once you've liberated yourself from your ego, that's what ultimate freedom is because then nothing else, it doesn't matter what you can experience in your life, it, it won't uh, imprison you. And this is why you hear a lot of classic cases of people going to prison and this and that, but, but they may have been innocent when they went into prison, but their mind's completely free, so they're peaceful in prison. Now, now, the, someone may say, well, what if someone shanks them or something like this? Like, that's a different conversation. <laughs> right. But but the point is, oh, but in saying that, uh, there, there are a lot of stories in, in Zen where like a samurai came to the monastery and stabbed a, a monk, but he, he had no reaction to being stabbed because he was already completely free. Hmm. And then there's an, another opposite side of that is that when the monk was stabbed, he, ah, he screamed, and then another disciple said, look, see, he wasn't free. And he's like, no, he's just expressing what the spontaneous moment needed. And it was just, you know, he was exaggerating his, his death, so to speak. But getting back to your original question is that it's, it's the freedom from the prison that we build for ourselves. Hmm. So we, we are the ones in, in most cases that imprison ourselves because we have, as you said before, we have a certain way of thinking that we think is the best, our subjective viewpoint is number one, it's the perfect view. But that's actually what eclipses us from seeing reality as it truly is. And th then you can see anything as it truly is. It doesn't matter how stupid or frivolous the external landscape may be. If you're inwardly free on the inside, it doesn't matter who is present. It doesn't matter what someone says to you. Because it, it's, it's like water off a duck's back. Because uh, you have a mind of no deliberation then. You can just sort of effortlessly move through life because you've freed yourself from this sense of person. And, it's, and the irony is in, in cognitive science and psychology is that 
when we think we are too much of a person, so if I think I'm too much Jason and I have all this conditioning that socialization has impressed on me, when I'm when I need to act naturally in the environment, there's a bit of hesitation because the the program that I have is in conflict with the environment that I'm experiencing. Hmm. So I'm I'm acting with hesitancy because the inner program is not in sync with the out the outer program. But if you've got rid of the inner program, then you can just move through life efficaciously with no problem. And this is why a, a yogi never stays in a in a physical environment for longer than two weeks. Really? Because they understand that they accumulate the habits and the tendencies of that of that society mm-hmm. or that culture. And so they want to keep their mind free from any sort of ideas or ideology or, or what have you of that environment. So, but in a nutshell, to, to get back to your question, the freedom itself is to be free from the conditioning that we've all experienced, which yeah, is that, again, easier said than done. Oh yeah. I mean, we, we, we have a beliefs and behaviors workshop. And it's like, we teach people mo- modalities to clear. And if you've never done it, and let's say you're 45 years old, you got 45 years of crap. But then even if you clear today, you got to clear tomorrow. And because just stuff, even if you turn off all the news, it's just osmosis, right? And there's, there's programming that's not the news. There's programming just around you. Um, and I, you know, when you say freedom from yourself, you know, I think a lot of people attach freedom only to external stuff hmm. because they're conditioned to wear a team jersey. Like you said, American, Australian, or you, you know, Ukrainian, Russia, US, whatever it is, Republican, Democrat here in the US. And and I used to be someone who was that. I mean, I worked in politics. And it's interesting yep. that when you start really attaching yourself to that external illusion uh, of identity, mm. you're so easily controlled because instead of, you know, there's a lot of gray in the world, but the s- society wants you to think everything's black and white. So it, I find it interesting now where I couldn't do it, say, even 10 years ago. If something is in the news or something comes up to step back and say, and question and say, well, do we know the whole story? And it's funny how people react to that. Mm. You're a traitor. You're just for saying, do we know the whole story? You're a conspiracy theorist. You're this, you know, and it's like, I'm just sitting back and it it doesn't make you a pacifist, right? Because the Taoists, many Taoists could kick ass, right? But they didn't just go seeking out fights. It was like, (laughs) don't push them too far. And then uh, that's it. They knew when to fight. (laughs) Exactly. And what I find ironic with your example, Kurt, is that if you, they call you names and they label you so that you fall in line with their way of thinking. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're a conspiracy theorist or, you know, you're, you're a pacifist, uh, why don't you think as the way we do just because, you know, you're sitting back like this, you know, you are this and you are that. But like you said, like the, the original Taoists, they did kick ass, you know what I mean? They, they weren't just always sitting around shanti and peaceful. I mean, they acted it immediately appropriately to whatever the situation needed a lot of the time. But most of the time they did live in nature and peaceful and, and away from a lot of the noise which I, I guess Taoism would still recommend in, 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 a, in a physical sense. But it's just ironic because people to get to, to try and get anyone to think that as they do, they'll shame you as, as much as they can so that you fall in line. And we see this particularly on social media now. We see this politics promotes this now. It's, it's gotten a lot worse, as you said, within 10 years. Uh, but even 10 years ago, as you said, you probably wouldn't it's still then you probably couldn't say anything like that right like i remember having disagreements with my family like 12 13 years ago about certain things and then i was labeled like conspiracy theorist or or this and that because i would just say look we don't understand the full picture i mean you can't just trust what channel nine says for example right. you, you just can't just go lock stock and two smoking barrels and just, yeah, this is what the truth is. And I was like, you don't know, you know, and that's why I always explain that Zen story to people about the the farmer and the son story. 
where he's constantly saying, we'll see, even though his, his son breaks his leg, um, uh, has a terrible limp, so he can't go to war. So there's, it's a back and forth thing. And the moral of the story is we'll see is what the farmer says and, and the villagers are, are so stoked about it because you just never know what's going to happen and you never know the crux of the story. But as you said, because of this black and white thinking, we think that, no, this is the way it is. And if you think that it's not the way it is, then you're on this side of the fence. And it's like, but life is shades of gray. And it's, and it's mainly shades of gray. And that's what people don't appreciate or, or don't take the time to try and understand because they're so engrossed in their own conditioning and their own view of the world. And, and that's the problem. Even on the, even, I don't, as you probably know, Kurt, I think I've told you a few times, in the comments section on a lot of my YouTube videos, you get a lot of this political banter between people. And because what I'm speaking about is getting rid of this, or looking at it from an Eastern perspective about the subjectivity and this and that. And people will say, oh, what about this problem? Or, you know, the writer talking about this, we can't just sit around and do nothing. And, and it's like, but you've missed the whole point of the story. And what I try and reiterate to those sorts of people is that if we all took that sort of perspective where we didn't get so engrossed in our own conditioning, would we have conflict to the extent that we have it now? And of course we wouldn't because we would all be, as we were talking earlier, taking care of our own backyard and then the world sort of sort, sorts itself out because nature, and we are a part of nature, is a self-organizing system. And so we, we are paranoid that we can't trust other people, so we need to organize it for them. So our way of thinking, we're going to organize other people to think the way we think because we don't trust them enough to think for themselves. It, and it's funny, it, it's, you know, people who say that, that we have to, we have to fight. And, and I say this, is, I don't, it's not a judgment. It, it's just the way it is. And I, and I used to be there mm. is, uh, it's like, they, w- would you rather have Gandhi weaponized everyone? Would you rather have Jesus pulled himself off the cross and said, all right, now we're going to kick ass. Of yeah. course not, you know? And, and, no. But I also think, as we were talking, I think, have, have you seen the Hunger Games movies at all? I don't yeah, know. I have. I have. Yeah. I have and, seen and that last, the last episode, you know, the last part of it, where they're fighting and they're fighting and they're fighting and finally they overthrow and they kill Snow. And then it turns out the savior that they put in there, the entire thing was orchestrated and is just as bad as Snow. Mm-hmm. And to that point, it's like, be careful what you wish for because like you said, you don't know the whole story. And just because this person is wearing your team Jersey and you follow them off a cliff, um, it's, it's very, it, like you said, it's, it's hard to sit back and ask questions. It takes brain power. And, um, it's a lot easier just to (laughs) shut off your brain, be an unconscious zombie and say, no, 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 this is my team. I'm just going to follow them and and not have to think about it. Not that you should be thinking about it overall, which is part of, I guess, what fasting the mind is. What, one thing is, is we've talked about politics, and we've talked about news, and we've talked about that, but, and you, and you talked about health. You know, I have, a, I have a new Mindful Month program we're doing, and it's really just getting, quote-unquote, busy people. To It starts off with five minutes in the morning. Don't put mm-hmm. your cell phone in your room. Don't wake, try to wake up without an alarm, all that, which means you got to go to bed earlier the night before, and wake up, pee, Go and pee if you got to go to the bathroom, right? But don't pray. Don't do affirmations. Don't talk to anyone. Don't get on your screen. And it starts off not with any meditative positioning. Just go sit in the dark. Yeah. Sit comfortably on the couch for five minutes. And it's, it's funny. Some people can't do that. They literally can't sit for five minutes, which is more, I guess, for your, your most recent book, Spiritual Detox in, in uh, or Spiritual Freedom in the, in the uh, Digital Age. Mm. But one guy... When we started, he had had a job. He's in sales and he travels around. I think it's office technology. And his biggest stressor that really deteriorated his life, I mean, a lot of things, relationships, health, and all this, was that he switched jobs uh, Mm because his old company got bought out. He was a top sales performer at his previous company. They didn't have quotas. They didn't have sales quotas. His new job had sales quotas. I think he's selling like the same product, 
because he became so attached to the sales quotas, everything fell apart. Health, everything. His sales was down. He's like, I feel like I can't sell. I don't know what I'm doing. Right. And it spirals out of control. So we did this. We started with five minutes. Then we added five minutes at night before. And then we expanded. And I said, take away the timer and just sit. Don't time yourself for meditation. Just kind of habit, building the habit and adding some other things and breathing techniques and all that. He messaged me earlier this. So this is he's only been in it now. What's, what is it? The 23rd? So he's been in the 23rd, 23 days. He messaged me four days ago and said, this is unbelievable. I hit my sales quota for the month by the 15th. And I'm now the top sales performer in my region. And I've lost so much weight, my pants don't fit. From 15 days of just a little bit of silence. Mm -hmm. And it's Mm kind of like, he said, I'm not focused on the sales quota. I don't even care about it anymore. And it's not that he's not selling. It's not that he fasted the mind and and became a hermit and gave up his Mm -hmm. job. Mm. It's that by fasting the mind, he wasn't focused on all this. So he's more effective in... I guess he. I guess he's probably. I mean, he still has stressors, but moving toward Uwe, right? Effortless yeah. action a, yep. a bit. Yeah, that's a great story because the thing is, like, when he was preoccupied with the sales, so he's overthinking it, and and you're not you're not reaching the quota, and yeah. so once you begin to empty the mind or just bring silence into your life, and when you do that for a longer term, longer period of time, then you begin to act immediately and appropriately, appropriately to each and every situation. So he's easily navigating the landscape, see, without thinking about what he has to do. He knows how to sell. He doesn't need to learn how to sell, but it's the thinking about making that quota that was handicapping him in, in, in life in general, right? Like all he could think about was the quota. And so then when, when he brought that silence, then he could actually just navigate the environment as it presents it presents themselves and 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 actually most people uh, well good people in sales do, do that as well like they don't overthink the situation they have an an ability to adapt to whatever the other person is saying so then they can just you know mold themselves to whatever that person is saying without thinking about oh but I'm trying to get this I'm pushing them for this sale you know you bend a little bit it's it's almost like it is a little bit of a way it's you know you got to be you got to bend to be straight you know you have to be a bit flexible in these situations. And another thing about that story I, lo- I like is that when you first started doing when you, you told him to be mindful in the dark and that, and he couldn't do it, and the overthinking and, and the overdoing a lot of the things with the thinking, you know, taxes our energy system so much. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I talk about in Fasting the Mind about the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. He's only activating most of the time, well, he, he used to, the sympathetic nervous system, the, the fight and flight uh, part of our nervous system, the, the active part of our nervous system, which then when you go to sit quietly in the morning, it's like, for example, when you turn a ceiling fan off. When you first mm. turn the ceiling fan off, there's still a bit of juice in there. So he's sitting in the morning and the juice of the, the, the day before is still overflowing in his mind. And so that's where the agitation comes that, First of all, this is stupid. Like I'm sitting in the quiet in the dark. Shouldn't I be doing something? Which is what most people think. Yeah. But they don't. But they don't understand how much that contributes to how well they perform throughout the day. And and yeah. that's where meditation comes in. You know, and and in that sense, meditation can be used. That can be used for you know obviously deeper reasons. But once you start to activate the parasympathetic nervous system or the the rest and uh, digest part of the nervous system, which is which is activated in doing nothing. That's what actually nourishes the sympathetic nervous system. It's you know you have this kind of yin and yang effect where you know doing nothing actually enhances intellectual life, hmm. which is pretty strange, right? When you say that, it's like shouldn't reading a thousand books enhance intellectual life? Look, that'll help, but it's you might go mad reading a thousand books. You know, you need a little bit of time to. <laughs> rest and assimilate and digest probably what you've read and just be yeah. quiet with your mind. Allow your mind. I mentioned the, the Zen open awareness meditation practice in fasting the mind where just the ability to let your mind just to do as it wants, as it pleases, but cultivating the witness of that to look at all of this junk that comes up from our subconscious 
these bubbles that come up and you think, well, you know, why am I thinking that? Like, that's, that's weird. Like, you know, it, it's completely unrelated to what I have to do today. And so once you develop this practice more, you begin to then observe your thoughts as kind of this temporary phenomenon, which they actually are. And, and, and as I said before, 90% of thoughts are not even useful. So that's, that's the difference, right? Like it's, you know, I always say to people that, you know, people say they think like, I, I need to do meditation. I need to practice meditation. And I always say to them, meditation is actually who you are. The person is what you mm. do. You know, you're doing the person. The thoughts in that are creating this identity that you think like, I've got to get up and, you know, I can't sit for five seconds. So I've got to think about the quota I've got to make or, you know, I've got to think about family life today. I've got to get the cereal out for the kids or something like this. And you're not giving yourself that just that tiny little bit of time to allow your nervous system to relax and to see actually what's in your mind. And so they, they use a, a metaphor in, in, in yogic philosophy of, once the ripples of the the ocean are settled, you can actually see into the water and see what's actually in there. Mm. So once you bring the agitation of your mind down, then you can actually start to work on the deeper layers because you can actually then start to see what's actually inside you as opposed to like when the ripples are going like this, you don't know what's going on. And so you, you think to yourself, why did I act like that way with Kurt? Why did I say that to him? You know, that was kind of stupid, you know? And it's like that's really out of character and yeah, of course it's out of character because you're you're dwelling on the in the waves of the ocean and, and not abiding in the ocean itself. So, uh, yeah, and I think Alan Watts talks about that, right? Like you go into a lake and you and it, and it gets all muddy, and just mm. like wait for it. But what we want to do is try to like force it away. It's like you can't do that. It's like when people, you get in an elevator and you press the button eighteen times or the walk button at a yeah. street. It's like we're so we think we can control everything. Uh, yep. You mentioned open awareness meditation and thoughts that bubble up. Mm. And that, you know, for, for most people is the, is the most challenging part because they sit for meditation and, oh my gosh, there's so many thoughts coming at you. Yep. What do you recommend someone does? You know, with open awareness, right? You, I, I hear a bird and I, I hear it and I don't judge it. It's just a bird. And I, but when things start bubbling up on a regular basis, what do you recommend for someone who has that, like, oh my gosh, it's the fifth day in a row and my thoughts really are coming at me over an hour, something I had yesterday or something I got to do today. Yeah. There's two ways to approach this, this question because like, I know a lot of teachers that would say, oh, so five days in a row you had your thoughts? Oh, it's great. It's a great meditation. Hmm. They, would, they would look at it that way because uh, in some sense, you're still purging. You're hmm. still because a lot of people have been busy for a long period of time. So sometimes it might take months. You know, I don't want to deflate people, but it might be a, a longer period of time for some people. Like say if you're on Wall Street, for example, and you're go, 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 go 24 hours a day. I mean, it's going to be tough to, to find any sort of equanimity, even if you go on a seven-day retreat. You know, it's still going to, it's still, there's still going to be this residual busyness that's affecting your mind. Um, so that's one way of looking at it. Another way is, well, you need to, in some, especially with open awareness meditation, it's, it's probably, uh, well, first of all, don't give up, but useful to have a sort of anchor in your meditation, possibly your breath, like this is where Vipassana is, is, is important, and also think about what you're doing the night before. So, and, you know, I've spoke to you this, about this on your podcast before is think about like, you know, what sort of food are you eating? For example, a night before, what time are you going to bed? As you mentioned, you know, sleep hygiene is a very important thing, particularly for meditation. And what kind of entertainment are you consuming the night before? And also, are you still working after nine o'clock at night or 10 o'clock at night? And some people are right. I know lawyers who work in, into the, into the graveyard shift. So you, you got to really be thinking about it. And I know I, I harp on about that a lot, but I noticed that when I put people on like a strict nightly schedule where they don't do things, their morning meditation is a lot better and, and it actually affects 
their their day as they go forward because they're yeah. not as agitated approaching the day. And again, most of the world are tired. Their, their sleep hygiene is terrible. And I remember when I first started going to monasteries and ashrams and you're going to bed at like seven, eight at night and you're like, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> what is going on? But then you naturally wake up at like 3.34 in the morning. Yeah. And and you're you're fully energized. You're ready for... A lot of people say, how do the monks get up at three or four in the morning and chant and meditate? And it's like, well, they've got on a bed at like eight in the morning, uh, eight at night. And, and, it, and it's repetitious. Like there's no deviating from that. They don't have a night where they go, you know what, I'm going to Facebook all night. <laughs> they don't have to. <laughs> they don't have technology. Yeah. So, I would say, continue with the practice. Don't deviate from a few rules. Like, get good sleep. Try not to consume too much entertainment at night, and also eat well. Or, or don't, you know, drink a can of Coke or something like that at night. Like, that's going to, you know, knock you around a bit because the sugar is going to affect affect you in many ways and that's going to affect your sleep it's going to affect the way you meditate in the morning so and also to 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 double down on that to practice daily mindfulness as well and look i know that in 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 most day people are, are busy they're doing things and you know there's pros and cons to that right you can be in the immediate moment when you are doing something and that's actually there's nothing wrong with that right like if you're making a shoe and you're sitting there hammering the shoe and you know, this is good. You're, you're in the moment. You're not thinking about other things because if you're thinking about other things, you're going to smash your thumb with a hammer. <laughs> so, but outside of that, if you're just practicing or bringing into your life more mindfulness, then when you actually sit down and practice meditation, I just say Zen open awareness meditation, that'll help it also because mm-hmm. you're actually training your mind not to follow the thoughts. And see, that's the problem with our society. We, we, we're told to daydreaming is good, imagination is good, and this and that. Good to an extent, I would say. Like imagination has brought a lot of good things to the world, you know, great fiction stories and, and so forth and so on. But it's to an extent. You know, if you're sitting there daydreaming all the time, like I had a friend who said that he daydreams all afternoon. I'm like, isn't that exhausting? Like, daydream. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah. Because none of it eventuates. A lot of the things you daydream about don't eventuate. So you're kind of ruminating on like on fantasies that actually don't happen. Or doom, so, gloom and doom, right? Doom and glo- <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, doom and gloom. So if you're training your mind to always be present, when it comes around to meditating, it becomes a lot easier. It's like any other skill. But a lot of people don't want to put the work in. And so <clears throat> sometimes... People need to go to a monastery or an ashram to get some sort of shock therapy. You know, like this is what we're doing. And all you're doing is bringing your mind back to the, the present moment. And so that bodes well for when you go back into your normal life. And th- like, I, sorry, Kurt, but like I was saying, like we're training to wander all the time. Like that thought, you go that way. That thought, you go that way. Yeah. And just like see the thought, let it go and just keep, you know, looking straight ahead. I remember when I when I was with Muji 13 years ago and he, he used a windscreen wiper analogy and he's like, focus on the road. You know, the, even though the windscreen wiper is going like this, if you look at the windscreen wiper, you're going to crash your car. And that's basically what we do psychologically, physically. We're looking at the windscreen wiper and we go insane. We become unhealthy. And so... That I think I feel that's a good metaphor for everyone in the world. How long do you, when you sit to meditate in the morning or whatever? You know, for me, sometimes because I have forty-seven years, at most of which was not mindful. <laughs> you know, I mean, right, forty-four of it was not mindful, and it's still a journey. But mm-hmm. I still get things, and 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 I find sometimes I have to dissolve. It's so much better than it used to be. But I have to dissolve frustration with myself that I, I did not go completely into the void. You know, when I did it and I had too many thoughts and, and, and that happened, when do you get up? You know, for me, that's it. It's like uh, another five minutes and I'm going to be enlightened. You know, I mean, when do you, like when you're meditating, 
how do you know you're done in the morning? I know that's, it sounds like a, a, for people who don't meditate, that may sound like a completely mundane question, mm. but maybe, maybe it's not. I don't know. For me, it's like, am I done? Am I, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's a perf- perfectly uh, good question because the thing is for myself now, I, I really do put a time cap on it. Like mm. it's, and, and I've learned this from monasteries that being with teachers, particularly in Thailand, they really put a cap on it. And I think, because sometimes when you put a cap on it, you know, you, you're completely dissolved. And the next minute, yeah. the bell goes and you're like, well, I'm not really willing to be Jason just yet, you know. <laughs> I'm not willing to get up. But I, I really just use it. I, like I usually meditate in the morning and at night for 45 minutes each time. And so I put a cap on that. But when I first started meditating a couple of decades ago, I would – you know, do this Superman thing, you know, like sit around for two hours. And, yeah. You know, depending on where, I, like if I was uh, in Ramana Maharshi's ashram, I'd sit there for like four or five hours and, you know, le- legs are completely, <laughs> what, 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 <laughs> completely gone. Like what Alan Watts would say, you know, aching leg school is in. So, and, and I would do that, but, but I think I, f- I feel like that I benefited from that as well. I just, I, where I'm at now in my life, I don't feel like I need to sit around for five hours. That's all. It's um, 45 minutes is good for me. And I, I think that one of the goals of meditation is to have a meditative mind. So mm-hmm. it's not just meditation itself. It's what you do off the mat. So, okay, you, know, you dissolve yourself in that moment. That was all well and good. Do you have a meditative mind in life? And so what I mean by that is having a mind of no deliberation, of being able to see the world as it is and, and to deal with the situations at hand with a calm mind as well, uh, which is beneficial. Yeah, that's so um, – and, and even, you know, my, my Qigong, my Shifu talks about um, uh, chewing, being mindful. Mm-hmm. Start, start being mindful when you eat. Because I'm just used to swallowing it down. Or, and I think Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the importance of doing it while washing the dishes. You know, having that meditative mind of, um, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm just a little over a year into Qigong. Yep. And we're just starting to make progress. <laughs> you know, I, I know that's not the goal, but we're starting to do things that now almost I have to start over. Yep. And it, I, I do it every morning outside. And I, I start with seated meditation. And then I go into Qigong and I'm not, if you watched, well, you know, to an outsider watching someone do Qigong, it seems like there's nothing going on. Mm. It's the toughest thing I've ever done in my life to the point where I've been on Saturday mornings, I go at seven in the morning and I meet him and we do Qigong. I've been in tears sometimes because the inability to just, he's like, no, relax, relax. And he's, and he's trying to help me trying to make my wrists relax, makes so much come up that I realize I have so much tension in me. I'll break out in tears. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he, a new thing is like lifting my chest because he's like, and doing it. I'm more sore from doing nothing of Qigong. You know, you're Mm -hmm. doing something, but you're doing nothing Mm -hmm. that it is. It's the most eye opening thing I've ever done. And I didn't know anything about Qigong till I started reading your books. Yep. And I was like, oh, maybe I should start that, you know, Tai Chi. And we came here to Sedona. I'm like, well, it's Sedona. You got to do Qigong. I found, and I found a guy who was trained uh, by Master Zhou in the Wudong Mountains. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's amazing, though. But the sitting still in our culture is actually the hard work yeah. instead of struggling and moving forward. Um, cause I'll, I can go, I can go destroy myself in an hour workout at the gym and I'll yep. be fine. 30 minutes of Qigong and I'm a heaping mess for three hours sometimes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> if it, if it's, if it's bubbling things up, sometimes it's great, but sometimes yep. it re- especially with Shifu things bubble up and mm. it's just standing in the horse stance or chi ball yep. stance for a half hour. Mm. At first it's tough physically. But then it's, man, it's, it's mm. really eye-opening. It is. It is. And that goes for all forms of meditation, like you said, yeah. Kurt, right? Like that, that 
unconscious or unaware t- tension that we all carry around that is downloaded into our body, into our psychosomatic organism, and we don't know about it. Like so, when you, particularly when you start practicing qigong or tai chi chuan, because you're in the you're in the development of developing qi, so the whole process of qigong, in some sense, is to develop qi. It's same with Tai Chi Chuan. It's, you're, you're developing Qi within your system and you're getting and you're working on directly on your flight, fight or flight system. So, and because you're working directly on your fight or flight system, that's like you said, that tension that you have in your wrist, that might be a fight that had, you had, might have had a fight when you're eight years old and still it's affected you uh, physically in a way, psychosomatically, it's still in your subconscious. And so you, your behavior is still according to maybe that situation you had when you were eight years old. And so the tension is downloaded into our bodies and we don't know it. And so we notice that when, particularly when we're practicing Qigong or Tai Chi Chuan, that, that like you said, that tension we have in our body, uh, it's hard to release for a lot of people. Uh, and that's the, the process, particularly when that, within those practices, is to continue for for a lifetime, obviously, it's not something you do overnight. It's it's a continual practice. You're constantly developing qi, and you're releasing, which in Chinese is song. You're you're releasing the tension, which allows your, like you said, your your qi to flow easily in your body or your psychosomatic organism, and so you don't have that tension anymore. So you got even your physical body is a is benefiting from the internal work. So, and, and, and comparing that also to sitting meditation, because you're working directly with the mind with sitting meditation, but you are working with the body too, right? You are sitting like a concrete block for a certain period of time, but the mind itself wants to get up and run away. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, the tension is motion for the mind, right? The tension is, I need to move. I need to move. The body's sitting I've got to go and do something or I've got to go and be productive. And then when you pull the plug on that and it's just, and then you're in your own head and you're at war with yourself, that again is a releasing, that's a song process as well. That's a release of tension. As you mentioned with the person who's still five days thinking, they're still releasing tension, but the tension is coming out of their subconscious. So their thoughts are going mad and bubbling up like, they're probably thinking about things that happened when they were five years old. You know, so many yeah. things bubble up when you're meditating that you might think about something you hadn't thought about for decades and it just comes up and you're like, what is going on here? Like, am I, am I literally going nuts? But yeah. it's, it's that repressed tension that we have within our psychosomatic organism that is beginning to bubble up. And this is, you know, if you are interested in the eternal, internal arts of Qigong, Tai Chi Chuan, Vipassana, Zen open awareness and these types of, or even uh, self-inquiry and Advaita Vedanta, these sorts of deeper practices, then you'll notice that you'll, you'll, you'll begin to be more free of that tension. Mm. And, and that allows you to act appropriately with every situation because you won't, you won't be acting with tension then, right? So when something happens in life, our tension is what's pressed against the situation. I don't, I don't like this because... I've seen this before, and that's just your tension, your your fight or flight system going, no thanks. But if if you deal on those deeper levels, then anything can happen, and you can deal with it. And yeah, I always I always think of, uh, and I can't remember if it's Chongsa or Lao Tzu that talks about like the flexible tree is more is actually stronger than the one that breaks. And when we yep. lived in Charleston, we had palmetto trees, which are very rubbery. They're like palm trees, but palmetto. I don't know the difference. Yep. And the state flag of, Char- of, of South Carolina is a palmetto with a half moon over it. It's a cool, cool state flag. And the reason they have that is, and it's the state tree, is there was a, um, oh gosh, what was the name of it? It's, it's Fort Sullivan now. I can't remember what it was before. But during the Revolutionary War, the British came. And the Americans were in this, in this fort. And the British started just shelling the fort. And mm. it should have just blown it apart. It was a wooden fort. But the only trees they had to make the fort out of were palmetto. So basically, these cannonballs bounced off it or were absorbed. And that's how they won the war. 
so that just shows you, you don't have to be even be on offense to win the war if you're flexible enough to know, you know, how to do it. And I always, every time, whenever I read, I can't remember if it's Lobster or Changza, I think of that war, which was very interesting. They won by yeah. default because all they had to do was build a fort out of palmetto <laughs> trees. That's crazy. That, that's a great story. Yeah, the 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 Zhuangzi one was the uh, the useless tree, but yes. it's, it's it's same in principle. Uh, basically, there's, and there's a few different interpretations, obviously. Um, but yeah, it's that, well, as you were saying with the, the ordinary palm tree, right? Uh, Drongsa says in the story, like, because someone's, someone, you know, everyone was under the tree, right? It's called the useless tree. So everyone was under the tree. Everyone was taking a break in the shade. The horses were there. And then one of the guys said, look at this tree. Like, how useless is this? Like, what can you use it for? And then the other guy said, you may think it's useless, but have a look at the straight trees around us. They're the first ones that are cut down in their prime. This one continues to grow old and wise and provide shelter for each and every person. So so in being flexible, <clears throat> so all of its contorted branches and being flexible and this and that is what actually provides shelter for other people because you are naturally growing older and wiser from not being the straight hard palm tree. That's the first one that's knocked down by a cannonball. But yeah, right. when the cannonball hits the, the pomelo uh, tree, then it's it's absorbed and and doesn't break. So, and it's kind of a metaphor for for a Taoist sage in in this sense because you know the Taoist sage grows old and wise and avoids the perils of society, and and so it's not doesn't have the negative effects of stress that we all accumulate from society, and so. That's a, 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 a good metaphor for all of us because if we can avoid that sort of stress, if we can avoid being the straight and rigid tree, then we can grow old and wise. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot to do with wisdom and, and longevity as well in that story. So, so in the book, there, there's it's, it's not just we talk a lot about Taoism, but there's, I mean, you have Indian traditions, you have Eastern traditions that go across, and you've mentioned a number of them here, but. Some of the fasting and mind techniques we've talked about, open meditation awareness, obviously sleep, nutrition. Um, you, you mentioned Vipassana. And it, it's funny because, it, and, and you, when you talk about Vipassana, I used to think Vipassana was you had to take, what is it, seven days Ten and days, go out. Yeah. And, and the funny thing was, this was maybe a month or two ago. I don't know what I was searching. I, I, I Googled Vipassana, but I was looking, so, and all these blog posts came up, and they're pretty funny about people who are like social media influencers who thought it would be cool to go overseas, or actually some of them were here, and do a Vipassana like seven day, but they obviously didn't read like what was entailed in it. <laughs> and it was obvious they had never meditated and sat for more than 20 minutes. Yeah, and it yeah. was just this, you know, first of all, it was silent. No one was allowed to talk. The food they had... And it's just this like peril of no talking and oh my gosh, and I, I can't Instagram it, but then the pain they were in uh, from sitting. Um, but you also talk about Vipassana, which I, that, do you have to do the seven days or is Vipassana, Vipassana kind of a different term that you can do on a daily yeah. basis? Yeah. Well, well, well Vipassana in, in Pali or in, in Sanskrit means insight meditation. So it doesn't, uh, ordinarily mean it's it's uh, usually it's a 10-day retreat and the 10-day retreat was based on Goenka and Goenka uh, was a teacher from Burma uh, who went to India eventually and and uh, all of the all of the Dhamma retreats the Vipassana centers you see around the world is because of Goenka mm -hmm. uh, so you know it's great that he provided that service but Vipassana meditation is not a retreat like it's they they train vipassana meditation at those 10-day retreats but okay. it's not but vipassana itself is insight meditation so uh and a, a lot of belief is that it's, it's the original meditation technique of the buddha the historical buddha so gautama the buddha so whether that is or not is debatable but uh vipassana uh, as I mentioned in the book, is a, is a great fasting and mind technique because in Vipassana, basically, it's such a simple practice where you practice anapanasati, which is uh, awareness of respiration. 
And when, when I say, and this is, this is more difficult than what you think, because if I say to you, watch your breath, when we put, place our awareness on our breath, we naturally alter the bre- our breathing. Yeah, right, but, right. But they want you to observe it naturally. And this is where a lot of the difficulty comes in when we practice Vipassana because, okay, I, I'm trying to observe my breathing, but instantly I'm, I'm breathing deeper and, you know, I'm, I'm not doing it correctly. And so, and the, and the irony is once you do it correctly, then you get into a deeper level of Vipassana, which is in Pali, it's called Vedana. Vedana means it's, it's awareness of the sensorium in your body. And so the sensorium being, and why this is important according to Vipassana is that, say for example, if you're feeling your nerves, right, in your legs and you place your awareness or even, you know, it's ironic that you mentioned with the wrist, with, with Qigong, right? And if you place your awareness there, the, the tension and the pain that you're feeling is related to your, your subconscious. And so what they were called samskaras in, <clears throat> in Sanskrit. And or sankaras in, in Pali. And so the more you place your awareness on that for longer periods of time, and it's funny when you do place your awareness on it, you, you watch the pain dissolve. Mm. Even no matter how long you've been meditating, if you feel like your nerves in your, in your groin, for example, because you've been sitting in a lotus posture for too long, but you feel that, and if you place your awareness on it, you'll see that those that pain resolve. Now, the question from an outsider would be, well, what sort of sub- subconscious material are we dealing with when we're doing that and it's like well that's they don't go that far it's just you're dealing with subconscious material and the more that you practice it the more that you'll notice your mind become free of subconscious thoughts or of you know it's a slow process it's not again it's like with qigong it's not an overnight process it's a long process but that's basically what vipassana is vipassana is that process of bringing your awareness back in some sense, into your body and dealing with the resolved tension. And uh, yeah, like you said, with a lot of the tech people and that, that go to these retreats as if they're trendy, you learn pretty quick that <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not like that. I, I have a friend actually who's, I would say, kind of an entrepreneur. And, you know, he, he I, I used to know him really well when I used to live in Sydney. And he thought it was a cool idea to do Vipassana. And, you know, I was kind of chuckling to myself because, you know, I, I, know, I know him, you know. So, and then he, he only lasted four days. He, he just couldn't do it. Really, just couldn't he do came, it. And, and then he made up excuses why he didn't like it. I didn't like the idea of men and women se- uh, sitting separately. And so all of these things that, you know, in some sense, if he's, to me, that's kind of disrespectful to the tradition. But from where he sits, because he, he's so pious and Western, he thinks that they should equate to Western beliefs. And it's like, the whole point of you going there was not to judge whether men or women should sit together. It's there for yourself, basically, but for yeah. both men and women. It's not about sex or it's not about moral sensibilities. It's about working on the deeper layers of yourself. And again, like, like you said, like a lot of entrepreneurs in that, in, particularly in the US who think it's a cool idea, you have to remember that you are going to sit for 10 hours every day for 10 days. So that's a hundred hours of meditation in ten days, and sitting in the meditative position. Not because in in some of the blog posts they were like they came around, and if I set my legs out or laid down, they were like, "Nope, you got to get back up." <laughs> yep, yep, it's, yeah, it's true, it's true. Some some are a bit uh, more lenient. Like I've been on a few where you know your legs are fully gone, and you might you know just get a bit of blood flowing, and yeah. A lot of people do that. Um, a lot of the experienced monks don't do it. Uh, there's, I would say that if people want a soft kill into the 10-day retreat, I would recommend going to Thailand and practicing the more ancient Vipassana, what I was talking about, the more ancient technique. Because mm-hmm. when you go to a forest monastery in Thailand, their focus is on Vipassana, but it's not 100% silent. So, for example, you'll meditate a ton, but it's not 10 hours a day. You'll meditate for one hour in the morning, one hour after lunch, one hour at night, and you'll chant at night. So you might have like four active hours of, of well, three active hours of meditation and one hour of chanting. So you're, you're chanting the, the old sutras in Pali, 
which is a good meditation in and of itself. Uh, but it's spaced out over the day when you're at the monastery. So you can kind of through the they they don't advise you to talk, but if you see someone there maybe who speaks English, you might, you know, share a few words through the day at lunch, maybe and this and that. There is more of an emphasis to be silent, but they're not saying you don't have to talk. You know, it's obviously you don't talk in the practice, but when you're out and just walking in the monastery, you can speak. So I I, I always recommend that. A lot of people don't know about that because a lot of people aren't aware that in Thailand there's actually a different, not a different way, it's the original way of Vipassana. Goenka made up the 10-day one only 30, 40 years ago. So, uh, and that's like shock therapy where the Thai one is more of the traditional one where it's like you can stay at the monastery like I've stayed at the monastery for weeks, months, because you it's more flexible where you don't have to be like a concrete block for 10 hours a day <laughs> and not talk. Yeah. So that's the one I would recommend for people to, to do. Well, Jason, we uh, it's been another wonderful discussion. And if I urge anyone, go back because I, I think – not I think, it is, in conjunction with fasting the mind, listen to our previous episode, or a link to it, about a good way to get into place of fasting the mind is tuning out. Like, turn off the news, turn off the devices. Because as Jason mentioned, you know, the other day, I made the mistake of checking my email right before bed, and there were some things that pissed me off, and I woke up pissed off. And so, you know, it's like I didn't do my process. And... Yeah. um and it's hard to do at first, but uh, you know, when you fast the body and you know, that's become trendy now, right? Intermediate fasting, fasting, and there are benefits of it, of course, uh, yeah. certainly. But one of them is uh, autophagy, which allows your cells to literally kill off or, or shed the cancerous cells and replenish that, that it doesn't mm. happen when you're eating. No. And the same exact thing applies, I think, to your mind, your, 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 your being, right? You, you just yep. shed their thoughts, it's programming, it's subconscious, it's ego, it's pain, it's tension. So, yeah. And I wouldn't, and, and just to uh, elaborate a little bit on what you said, Kurt, I wouldn't say to, to think too negatively for anyone about that too. Like, you know, you said where you checked your email, the thing is you're going to slip up. It's yeah. just, it's a fact. It's just a fact. Uh, I still do. You know, things will catch me off guard and I think, shit, I, I reacted this way to that. Like I let it get me, you know, but it's a lesson for, for your practice also, you know. I, I've seen many teachers even into their 80s who will say that they're still not even at the beginning. And so that's a bit of a humbling thing to hear from them, even though, you know, we look at them and we say, oh, yeah, sure, sure, wink. We know you're, you're, you're a fair way down the path. But um, – but even then, they, they will say that there are still things that will in, impact them in a negative way, but it may be easier for them to deal with that, you know, when you've gone further down the path. So, I Yeah, and people, you don't do what I just did was judge, right? You're aware of it rather than being unconscious, but you don't, like I judged it, you know, which yeah, made me angrier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, is, that's, what, you know. that's what can happen, yeah. But even yeah. that's a lesson in and of itself, right? right? Like, so, you know, it, I, I wouldn't think about it. I mean, I, I've done that too. You know, we, we all do that we, where we will judge it and we think why. And that again comes to us sort of making a, we've kind of made a rule for ourselves that we shouldn't do this. So then we start to judge. Right. And, right. and it's just more about awareness. It's just more about focusing on the awareness of how you are behaving towards that, your actions also. And abiding more as that awareness as opposed to the judging or the the behavioral aspects. So well Jason, thanks so much. We're gonna to link to your book and, and all the books. Um thanks once again for coming on the Freedom Media Network. Thanks for having us on, brother. 